Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have an amazing founder, you know, that has done it. You know, he's now on his uh, next, uh, you know, rocket ship that he's built. You know, the last one, he had a really nice uh, outcome. Uh, we're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, all of the good stuff that we like to hear. So again, a very inspiring conversation ahead of us. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Janik Malin. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, man. It's good to be here. So originally born in Denmark. So give yes. us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? <laughs> uh, in the sort of outskirts of Copenhagen, life is, you know, Copenhagen is a little bit of a bubble. It's, uh, it's just such a specific society. Uh, so it was fun, lots of highlights, but I think the one most relevant was probably, like Sweden, Denmark was one of the first uh, countries to really get a broad level of adoption of, of broadband, which means I've been on the internet since I was 10 years old, probably, and uh, and started building stuff when I was 12. Um, and mostly, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember back when Macromedia Flash was cool, but like that was like the websites that I built for my dad's friends and stuff back in the day. Um, and so that's how. I guess I ultimately get into got into all this stuff. I still do design today, by the way, so I've kept that up. But I, um, I it's been a long time since I've written any any code that made any sense. But um, that was how I caught the bug, I guess. You got started early, you know, like at fourteen. But then also you got started early, you know, like getting your feet wet when it came to financial services. I did, yeah. So I I uh, I joined a company called Saxo Bank when I was only seventeen years old. I sometimes look back at this and be like, man, like that was like very, very early. Like, what was I doing? I should be having a lot more fun in my 17, <laughs> at 17. But, uh, but anyway, that, that happened. And, you know, Saxo Bank, for, for those who don't know, I guess was sort of like the European version of E-Trade, you know, the first to do online trading in Europe. And uh, so that was, that was my first professional experience, which was kind of odd because I think I joined, I was like number employee 300, something around there. After a year, we were over a thousand people. So it was uh, definitely like a rocket ship. I think the same week that I joined, I think it was General Catalyst, General Atlantic, I think it was Atlantic, uh, invested like hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and I mean, at that time, $100 million was a lot of money. I mean, still is today, but that was like before, you know, like in 04 or something. So uh, so yeah, that was my first professional experience. And I guess when, when that is such a rocket ship, it kind of really messes with your head because you start thinking, okay, cool, this is this is what working's like. And so in in that sense, I've never really had a normal job, I suppose, because that was a crazy time at a crazy, crazy fast growing place. Uh lots of great memories from there. I was there for a couple of years, then a bunch of us left to start another company sort of dually out of Copenhagen and, and London. Another crazy seven, eight years there. Um and that uh that company got sold in two thousand sixteen. And then I uh, I went stateside and uh, started tinkering with what now sort of uh, is known as public. So before public, you know, I want to talk about, you know, the, the last company too that you did, you know, tradable. So how did the whole thing, you know, of you venturing on your own? Because, I mean, Saxo Bank, it sounds like very, 
much a uh, stable, you know, kind of like path, you know, very much aligned with the whole European mentality of, hey, become a banker, a doctor, a, doc, a consultant or something. So how is the uh, whole transition into the venture world and, and getting started, you know, with Tradable? How, how did that all happen? Yeah. Well, I would say, first of all, to the credit, you know, Lars and Kim, the founders of Saxo, were well, very, very well known uh, back in Scandinavia, at least like they were never conventional guys. They were never the sort of conventional European person that you're referring to. They were very American in their mindset. The whole culture of the of the company was uh, very capitalist. I mean, everybody was given a Ayn Rand book when they joined, right? Like so, like very, very liberal, uh, very libertarian kind of place, and, and the whole culture definitely uh, had a lot of that. And that was that was enlightening in many ways. You know, a bunch of us left. In actually 08, 07, 08, like around that time. And so, you know, the global head of sales, the CIO started that company. I then sort of, sort of was pulled along with them, if you will. Um, but it was so weird because we were exactly the guys that left the rocket ship. And, you know, we had our reasons. We felt we had a pretty good thesis, et cetera. Then Bear Stearns went under. And the whole thing started to kind of unravel. And I guess you could say that we were a little bit then the idiots who had left that rocket ship only to try and start a financial services company at the worst possible time, right? Um, but, you know, we, we ended up pivoting a little bit away from the original idea. The original idea was about rolling up a bunch of brokerages around the world and this, that, and the other. It was a great thesis. The only problem with that idea really was that the sole sort of LP we had was a company called Lehman Brothers. You might remember. Um, and they sort of went on from one day to the next. And so then we just had to scramble like crazy and figure something else out. And we eventually did. It ended up being more of sort of a credit facilitation business. So at that time, what did everybody suddenly need? You know, uh, credit with the big banks in London at a time where they would have to put up 20, 30, 40 million dollars of collateral to kind of get it, right? Because the credit departments obviously in a way just completely um, froze up. And so, uh, so that ended up being a, a pretty good business. Um, and, you know, grew quickly into kind of profitability. And so not, not like a venture case at all, really, like more like sort of the classic, you know, uh, had had some money invested, but but really, um, really kind of turned profitable really quickly, and then scaled more slowly and, and ultimately took sort of uh, spent eight years there. And, you know, we ended up building a number of things within the company, spun some companies out. Tradable was one of the ones spun out. There was another one called Tradimo uh, that we sort of acquired. So it ended up also being a little bit of like a group kind of thing that that we were building uh, with various degrees of, of, of success. But, you know, definitely um, an interesting kind of journey, uh, just starting at a very volatile uh, point in time. And yeah, one of these journeys where it was so volatile from day zero and like that never really kind of slowed down, it seems. And so um, super interesting journey and, um, you know, and decent outcome for everyone. And um, yeah, that was sort of, that was eight years that went by really fast. Well, decent outcome. I mean, first uh, rodeo, you know, first exit, 120 million. So, uh, so what, what kind of possibility would you see that, would you say that gave you into the full cycle of building, scaling, you know, and exiting a company too. 
it was interesting because I was a young guy on the team. I mean, obviously, like I said, 17, so I was probably 20 when we started the company. Most of the other guys were like in the 40s and 50s, right? So it was like a totally different kind of thing. I was the guy who had a 250 days a year on a plane because I had no family and I could actually do that. And by the way, at the time, I loved it. Now I hate flying, right? It's kind of funny how things change over time. I used to be immune to jet lag. Now it hits me pretty hard. Um, but, uh, you know, I think... It was just a little bit, it was the ultimate like learning by doing kind of situation, which I think is just the only real way to kind of do anything. And it helped me, it it helped me really get into a mindset where, like I said, I, I never really had a job where I sort of had a defined scope and was hired to do this like job description and then go and do that because even Saxo was growing so fast. So it was just like, Hey, just help the company grow, do whatever you want. And I worked on so many different projects from like internal stuff to CRM stuff. We opened offices in London and Singapore and many different places. So it was like, it was all just kind of a whirlwind. Um, and, you know, the next company became a lot of the same also because it was like an ex sexo group. So the culture was very much kind of that as well. And then obviously as public was much more the case where I was, uh, it was just like, basically much more of a two co-founder kind of story, you know, sort of uh, raised venture capitals, a little bit more that kind of classic playbook. Um, and, um, and yeah, so, so that was actually a very different kind of journey. Also, I think doing it stateside, it's like very, very different. Um, I mean, I, I lived in London in 2016 when the company got acquired, but then Brexit happened at the same time. And so that was also sort of a thing of like very much a, a fork in the road, if you will. Uh, also in terms of like personal situation, you know, like I sort of looked around, like, do I want to live in London at the point in time where Brexit kind of happened because it took everybody by surprise. Um, but ultimately really glad I went to the US and I always had the inkling to go to what I've always considered the, the sort of Champions League of uh, the financial world, which at the end of the day is, you know, New York, but more specifically, I guess the, the US stock market, right? Like that's where all the best companies goes to IPO. It has the most volume, has the most liquidity, it's the most known. It's sort of, um, you know, it's where the money is. No kidding. No kidding. You got to follow the money. You got to follow the money. Now, in your case, you know, you did follow the money. You came to, to, to the US, but you also took a year off. So how would you say that? What did you do during that year off? Uh, what kind of soul searching or what, what were you searching for? What was the, how did you land, you know, with the idea of public? I was still in my twenties. So I guess I took that year out because I just realized like I'd been working my ass off since I was 17 and like, it would not be uncommon to pull all nighters, right? I, I feel like today, if you pull all nighters, like maybe you do it if you work for Elon Musk, but otherwise it's fairly uncommon. Like it was not uncommon back in my day. And again, Saxo was a very special kind of place. The work ethic was insane. We cared about it, but, but that was all I, I ever knew. Right. And so um, and so I kind of like, and I guess I, in a way I, I continued to work. I just, I was, I was at a point in my life for the first time where, um, you know, I had a little bit of money in my pocket. So I had a little bit more freedom of kind of choosing kind of what I could do. And I didn't need to go and get a job immediately, if you will. And, um, so for that reason, I just decided to go back to my design roots and really started, like I'd grown a little bit further away from design and product. And so I just went back with my own two hands and started building mobile apps and helped some other startups with sort of design advisory invested, started angel investing in 2016. I wrote my first angel check as well. So, um, so yeah, I just, I used it to learn honestly, as much as I, I possibly could, but I, I think there was value in just 
slowing down because you never, if you just go from one opportunity to the next all the time, you never actually know what your opportunity cost is, right? And so I think the the freedom, you know, financially and otherwise to just like take a year out and just like wait and see what kind of happens. And when I say opportunities, I both mean inbound ideas that come to mind. I had multiple kind of job offers being CEOs at different companies and this, that, and the other. And But it was like, it put me in a position where I didn't have to just like say yes or no quickly. Like I could actually think about stuff and have proper time to kind of analyze. Um, and then, you know, the public story, it was interesting. So so obviously for the audience that, that might not know, public is an investing app. And um, one of the first uh, kind of things we became uh, known for was we invented the concept of real-time fractional investing. So the ability to buy any stock for any amount of money. You know, if a stock's trading at $2,000, you could buy all the way down to a dollar of that stock, which did two things. On the one hand, and I think this is how it become it has become most known of like democratizing access to the markets because obviously like if you only have uh, 500 bucks saved up, even with that, you can actually build a meaningful portfolio. It's easier to invest sort of paycheck for paycheck. So I guess it, it opened up the market to a lot more people that historically didn't really have access to invest with high minimums and, you know, having to pay for full shares. But the idea actually came like mostly for the fraction of stuff, mostly from my own experience of, and, and, I had enough money to not do that, but it was sort of like I went to a bank and I was like, hey, here's the portfolio I want to construct. And I actually walked into a branch because the US has been a little bit uh, stuck behind in many cases. It's like, what's your branch? Like, this is a portfolio you want to build. And when you're constructing a portfolio that way, you're not sitting there going, I want to buy 316 shares of that and 17 shares of that, all these odd numbers. You're being like, I want five grand of this. I want 10 grand on Netflix. I want five grand at Disney. I want this. I want that. I want that. Obviously, not financial advice. This is many years ago. But like, and so I probably had 40 line items like that. Sent that to an email to the banker and he calls me up and, and I get executed over the phone all these odd amounts. I was like, this is a terrible experience because like, this is how you should think about a portfolio in dollar amounts, not in shares. That's totally arbitrary, right? Because like diversification is important rebalancing is important like like it's so much easier if it's just kind of dollar amounts and then i sort of looked around i mean keep in mind this is 2016 now so then i looked around and you know people had been talking about bitcoin for a couple of years i was like well there's a lot of things interesting about bitcoin but um, one of the most interesting facts is because it's born on the internet you don't have to buy one full bitcoin to participate in that ecosystem and so it, you know one thing led to another and quickly became the thought of like hey what if we could retrofit the stock market uh, with a similar mechanism, with a similar feature, so that you can just go and buy any stock for any amount of money. And then my design instincts kicked in and be like, well, then you can build a UI that's much more simple because it's just a, it's just a little bit more like a Venmo, like a payment app, where it's just like a big dollar amount and you enter it and, and you're done, right? Versus sitting there doing math and like, what's the market price? And it's ticking up and down, et cetera. Um, and I think especially for people that are maybe not, super active day traders that has been a where it's a little bit more longer term and you don't really care about every individual tick it's been a wonderful feature um to just control the diversification of your of your portfolio you know even if you have 10 50 100 000 it's it's quite meaningful to be able to like rebalance much more often um totally you know um controlling every parameter in your portfolio hey guys so pardon the interruption here so i gotta tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. 
you know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So obviously, as we're talking about investing here, you guys have also raised quite a bit of money. How much money have you guys raised to date? I think 300 million all in. And what has been the journey of raising the money? Uh, it's really been the sort of tale of two. <laughs> Two different kind of stories. I mean, you know, we launched in September of 2019. So, so think back to that. Basically, half a year before COVID, if you will, right? Um, so, when we launched the fractional thing, we had a beta rolling before that, where we had, you know, some social features and other things. But like fractional was the thing that really, like, when we launched that, every metric kind of went up 10x from one week to the next, and then it just kept rolling. And, um. And then we rolled all the way into March of 2020. And, you know, we had done around, I think it was our Series B. Yeah, we, we sort of like Series A was like the first round, the, the, the Series B in January. And so we were announcing it in March. I think we announced it the same day that the S&P 500 hit a circuit breaker for the first time in like 30 years, right? Because it was down more than 7.5%. <laughs> so the timing there was wild. Um, and by the way, even that 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 for, that that round we did, I remember we flew to LA because we were having a few meetings with uh, some Hollywood folks, uh, Will Smith and other celeb folks, um, and it was sort of like I think we we're supposed to actually uh, potentially meet with Kobe. His chopper went down the day before we flew, so that was like, and I'm a huge Kobe fan, so that was like getting into LA that week was like 9/11 in New York kind of vibe. Um, but then on that plane, people were actually, some people were wearing masks. And uh, somebody called me, it's like, hey, you want a plane? Like, have you seen this thing out east? And it's like, I'm not worried about it right now. I'm fundraising. Kobe just died. Like, you know, it's like, this is the last thing on my mind, whether I wear a mask or not, right? This is still January, obviously. And then things moved very quickly kind of after that. And so it was a wild journey because we went into COVID 15 people. Um, but at the end of the year, we were already 50 people. We'd raised two more rounds. So I think we, we basically raised twice in 2020 at the beginning and at the end and everything in between that remote scaling the company. I mean, we basically doubled the user base almost every single month in 2020. So like every company. And by the way, when you think about that, you know, 
it basically means you're running kind of a different company every month for a full year if you're doubling the user base of a product every month. Um, especially because we didn't start from zero because we'd launched sort of half a year before that. And so it was pretty meaningful numbers. And, uh, and that, was, that was a challenge that nobody, like doing that then remotely for the first time, that, that's a challenge nobody could, could ever prepare you for. Um, I had a small kid at home as well and, and, you know, my first one. And so, you know, it was just um, a little bit of a blur, very much a whirlwind. Uh, I often still try, um, partly why I enjoy stuff like this, because there's still things that I probably haven't fully processed there, if I'm being totally honest, and I still can find new perspectives when I really reflect back on that time, um, because it was just such a, such a hectic and such a crazy time. Now for the, uh, you know, I, I guess, I guess for the, obviously the capital that you mentioned that you've raised, you know, 300 million, I guess the, the question that comes to mind here is. Obviously, you know, like to get investors, you need to have the vision. You need to have, um, you know, that vision that is going to get investors excited, employees excited, customers excited. And when it comes to the vision, if you were to go to sleep tonight, Janik, and you wake up in a world where the vision is fully realized, what does that world look like? Um, I think a great vision, first of all, is kind of actually... <laughs> Like by definition, something you can't truly realize, but I would say then it's a world where every single person over the age of 18 has an investing, uh, and with a smartphone, you know, has an investing um, app on their home screen. Um, and, and I think obviously there's been a great boom. There's a lot more younger people coming into the markets. But I think especially when you look at a lot of the macroeconomic sort of situation around the country across generations, um, you know, millennials and Gen Z folks are sort of, um, they face a lot of issues relative to previous generations. Homes are very expensive. Scott Galloway talks a lot about this. One of our investors as well has, has another great podcast where he gets into this a lot. But like, yeah, there's a lot of issues kind of all around. One of the few real leg ups that they have relative to the previous generations is they can actually start investing with as little as 10 bucks from their phone the day they turn 18. And I think the average sort of boomer that started investing probably age 38. So that's 20 years of missed compound investing opportunity, right? And so that was a lot of what drove like the vision to just like, hey, the world is so much of a better place, generally speaking, if everybody participates in the economy by not just by working, but by being an owner as well. Um, and I guess that's a little bit where a lot of things kind of started. We think that could be super impactful. We think that could make for a super interesting business and important. I think we always ask the questions like, are there an, is there an important company to be built in the space? Right. Because I think, um, you know, there's a lot of, I've been a lot, the finance scene a lot, and I've seen a lot of companies that were great businesses, highly cash flow, you know, positive or whatnot, but not necessarily important companies. And so I think there was this a little bit sense of like, once you have one sort of win in the back, you get the, um, even if it's small, you somehow get the confidence to be, um, you know, to think things like, hey, what do I actually want to spend my life on working, right? And it's suddenly not just like, how do I, how do I make end meets and how do I, how do I pay, uh, pay the bills anymore? Um, and so from that perspective, um, obviously that, that has been a super helpful kind of dynamic in driving that vision of like, hey, how do we get to a world where everybody has an investing app on their home screen and is participating in one way or the other in the public markets at large. 
And so our mission statement, therefore, is also make the public markets work for all people. And by the way, that can mean you're investing in stocks, crypto. We recently announced bonds to alternative investments even. So it doesn't mean that everybody needs to just uh, build a stock portfolio of the Magnificent Seven. I think there are many different people that will come into the space in their own way through different asset classes. Um, but I think just you know participating in the upside of the economy at large, I think is something that's important for everyone to do at some degree. So let's say, you know, we're talking about the future, but I will talk about the past with a lens of reflection. If I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to that moment that, you know, you're thinking about maybe like making the switch from Saxo Bank. And let's say you're able to have a chat with that younger self coming out of, you know, the bank, thinking about a world where you could become an entrepreneur, a co-founder. And let's say you have the opportunity of having a chat with that younger self. What would that, that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before starting a company and why, given what you know now? That's an interesting question. I don't think I had that one before framed like that. Um, I mean, it's a little cliche, but honestly, the, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, the Nike slogan. Uh, just do it, right? Like I think earlier, like I, 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 I've always been fairly analytical, I would say. And so, which can be, great but it can also work to your detriment especially when you're long younger you have a little bit less confidence maybe um and what i didn't realize at the time is because i had actually been designing stuff on the web uh since i was 12 years old that put me in a cohort of people that were actually quite good at designing and building stuff on the web but i didn't realize that because also especially because i wasn't silicon valley i wasn't even in a major tech hub i was just sort of in the uh, suburbs of copenhagen right and so I think uh, giving me some sort of a confidence boost so I could have realized how that the, the skill set that I had built up at that point in time was actually um, in pretty high demand and it was not like a normal thing to be able to do at that time, right? This was like before building a website even, right? Like this is before Squarespace, this is before all that stuff. And uh, I guess taking more comfort in, in, in fact and then, and then, you know, keep, keep, fine-tuning your skill set like i think it's very important to always be deep in the work that's a management principle that we have here all of our managers have to be deep in the work and be ic's as well to a large degree because otherwise you sort of get disconnected from the work and you just become a little bit of a talking head or a political figure like you have to always be rooted in the work and i think that's the one thing that i then took the opportunity to catch up on during that year where i didn't do anything i mean i did a lot of things but i didn't sort of you know work um as such uh, that was just me taking the time to kind of polishing my skills and then also deciding for myself, like, okay, I've always loved design more than anything. And so let me go super deep on this um, and all the way down to like being able to actually design. And then I worked on a bunch of apps and then um, for friends and friends of friends, some of them started winning awards, getting featured by Apple. And so I was like, okay, it's not half bad, right? And then you start to get that kind of confidence up, but it maybe came a little later than I would have wanted it to. I hear if you. I could, if I could jump in the time machine. I love that. Just do it. So, Janik, for the people that are listening, that would love to um, you know, reach out and maybe they say to themselves, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to reach out to uh, Janik. You know, what is the best way for them to get in touch and say hi? Uh, probably just LinkedIn or Twitter or X. Uh, sorry, Elon. X. Um, LinkedIn or X. Uh, Yannick Malling. Uh, there's not a lot of other Yannick Mallings out there. So uh, that should be easy enough to find. Um, and I think, you know, 
it's not, I would say that to myself. I think there's a lot of people during the whole SERP era, uh, sort of SERP entrepreneurs <laughs> that uh, maybe uh, had a little bit too much just do it. And now when things have gotten a little bit harder in the last couple of years, decide that it's not for them. And so just do it is not always the advice, I would say. But I think if you if you really get to a place where you can have an honest conversation with yourself and you have enough self-awareness uh, to have that, and then then you still come out of like, okay, I there's something here that I can and should do, then yeah, then you know, don't don't hesitate. Amazing. Well, hey Danny, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Yeah, thanks, man. It's good to be here. It's fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.